My name is Nicole, and in a moment we're going to be reading the Bible together. But first, let's pray to our awesome God. Our Heavenly Father, it is our joy and our privilege to come together as your people today, to stand before you, accepted because we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. And as we come today to read more of the events of both the most tragic but the most victorious day in human history, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would fill our hearts with even more thankfulness as we appreciate so much of what Jesus has done for us, that he is our everything, every prophecy fulfilled in him, every sacrifice made completed in him, and every ounce of your love for us found in him. We thank you, Lord, and we come with thankful hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in the Gospel of John, and we're reading from chapter 19, verses 17 to 27. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each one of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. All right. Well, good morning again, everyone. And as Scott said earlier, we're continuing on our series in the Gospel of John as we build up towards Easter next weekend. And today we're looking at this idea a little bit more in depth that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Now, as always, kids, it is so much fun when you guys are here with us during the holidays and that sort of stuff. So, uh, kids, I I want you to be brave just uh, and help me out here for a second, okay? If I were going to ask you to draw me a picture of a king... What sort of things would have to be in that picture? What sort of things? Yes. A crown. Good. Yes. What else? What do we got? A cloak. Yep. Sort of like a robe or that sort of thing. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, What else? Micah? A throne. Yep. Put him on a throne there. Yes. Ready? 
Like a cape or something like that? Yep, a robe or something like that? Yep, good, yep. A scepter, ooh, nice one. Good, good, excellent word. There's like a, a silent C in there or something. Yep. Ta- taxes? <laughs> Let's not let this kid in government, right? Let's just, you know, <laughs> if that's where you're going already, Brenton, <laughs> that's amazing. All right. So hey, we can see there are like these core common... Ki- All right, last one, buddy. There's somebody who actually is the king. Interesting. Okay, good. All right, now, uh, lots of things there that we sort of associate with kings. I wonder, as we think back through history, do you, any, any favorite kings through history? Any big sort of monarchy, just, you know, lovers out there? And like that? I've got some pictures here of some. Uh, so we've got some, some different kings here. Uh, so we've got, uh, we've got, we've got king, Henry the Fourth, uh, king Louis XIV, Cyrus the Great, Caesar Augustus, I think the Egyptians do is like Dumatos or Thimbatep or something like that, the third. Alexander the Great, Ashoka the Great, uh, and Henry VIII. If Henry VIII is your favorite king, we can talk later. Um, so there's that, but you might be more familiar with movie kings, okay? Uh, some guys up here, all right, going old school here with Kenneth Brenner and Sean Connery, okay? Uh, this is the only picture from this movie that's acceptable to show in church. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, Wakanda Forever, okay, and uh, Queen Lizzie's dad there. Uh, So lots of different pictures of kings, okay? They can sort of look like different things. They can have some different fashion sense and all that sort of stuff. We have this picture of what it looks like to be a king. But there was also a picture of what it looked like to be a king back in Jesus' time. And, you know, this sort of picture here, you know, a, a king that would lead the people into battle, uh, that had a degree of war ability, a mighty lord, leader, you know, both that political and military sort of element, and certainly to the Hebrew mind, to the Jewish mind, somebody who was chosen by God, the Lord's anointed. That's what a lot of them would have pictured when they thought about somebody who was a king. And there were lots of hopes in their time as to what this king would do. Remember, we've been talking over the last few weeks about how in the time of Jesus, they were ruled by a foreign empire. And we heard last week how the Jewish people tragically had gotten to a point in their desire to persecute Jesus, where they said that we have no king but Caesar, that they were willing to accept the Roman king. But we're going to dive a little bit further, like I said, into this idea of what it means for Jesus to be the king of the Jews, because we're going to see Pilate, the Roman governor, point to this in a really interesting way. So let's just ground ourselves a little bit again geographically. Where are we at? This is Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. Uh, We've been hanging out down here for the last uh, couple of Sundays at a place called the Praetorium in Herod's Palace. The action's been taking front uh, and center here out the front of where Pilate was living at the time. And we heard last week how after this back and forth between the Jews and Pilate and Jesus, that finally Pilate handed Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. And we've talked about how this is exactly what they wanted. They didn't just want Jesus dead, they wanted him crucified because as we've seen under the Jewish law, whoever died upon the cross was not just dead but cursed. It was a sign that they were cursed before God. And so now Jesus is on his way to become that curse. It says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
So again, just a little bit of uh, orientating ourselves here. When we talk about him going to Golgotha, we're talking about him heading north there. Okay, and it's about, it's about a 600-meter walk. Okay, it's about one and a half times around an athletics track after being beaten pretty badly, as we saw last week, and now carrying his own instrument of death to the place where he is going to die. The details that John gives us are fairly sparse. There's not a lot of graphic imagery here. It's a matter-of-fact description of what is now happening to the man that John has been proclaiming through his gospel is no ordinary man. It says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Unlike the other Gospels, we're not really told about Jesus' interactions with these other two guys in the Gospel of John. We're simply told that there were two others with him, because John wants to keep the focus plain and center here on Jesus, and particularly this sign that Pilate hangs above him. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And this sign was something that we're told lots of people actually saw. It says many of the Jews read this sign for this play, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So the, this, this darker line here, those are the city walls, okay? Golgotha is just on the outside. People would have been passing through. There's a gate down here that you can enter. There's a gate down here. And so this was a, a walking track. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. These were three big languages that were spoken there at the time. Pilate, in wanting to proclaim that Jesus was the king of the Jews, mostly because he was unhappy with the Jewish leaders who had sort of forced his hand and forced him into a situation where he had to crucify Jesus. He had not wanted to. He declared three times that he was innocent, that he found no fault with this man. And this is Pilate taking a little bit of a shot back towards the Jewish people, but maybe also with some inkling that there is something special about Jesus. It would have looked something like this, at least language-wise. We don't know what wood was used and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin were the three languages that were being spoken. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The Hebrews at this time, the Jewish people were speaking Aramaic. Latin was the language of the Romans. Greek was the language, was sort of the international language at the time. Uh, I don't read Aramaic, but I can read it in what the Hebrew pronunciation would be, so you can get a sense of what it sounds like. Uh, so it would have been Yeshua, Hatzirei, Umelik, Hey Yehudim. And then in Greek, Yesus, Honazareos, Hobazaleos, Ton Judeon. And then in Latin, Yesus, Nazarenus, Rex Judeorum. Proclaiming to all that would have been there in their tongues, or at least in the tongue that they spoke, that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders who had been seeking to have Jesus killed obviously weren't happy about this. Remember, like I said before, their whole goal was to have Jesus disgraced. Their whole goal was to see Jesus hung on a cross so that it would seem as though he was cursed by God, and yet now there's a sign above him proclaiming to him to be the king of the Jews, which in lots of people's minds 
would have actually been a direct sign pointing to the fact that he was the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the son of David, the one that they had been waiting for to come back and give them rule again over their kingdom. Maybe Pilate knew something of this and was hoping to sort of say, this is what would happen to anyone who rebels against Rome. That's a possibility. But certainly the Jews weren't happy about this. They, they did not even want a, a hint that he might have been who they were arguing he was not. And so the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Claimed. Again, their whole goal in this is not simply to see him dead, but to discredit him. But Pilate, who has been pushed and pulled by the people, says, what I have written, I have written. This pronouncement that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews is going to stand. That proclamation, though, is, of course, contrasted with the way that Jesus is still being treated by the Roman soldiers. It says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Lots of people try to put some symbolism on what that means, that the cloth that he was wearing was one single unit and, and all that sort of stuff. Difficult to say whether there's anything to it really, but what's really clear is, is that this is meant to be a fulfillment of Scripture. The Roman soldiers said, let's not tear it, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. We talked before how in the lead-up here to Easter, there's all these things that keep getting dropped into the narrative where we're told this happened so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And all of it is designed to communicate to us, the reader, that everything that was happening was indeed in accordance with God's plan. That as tragic as this is, and as unjust as this seems, and as upside down as it all appears, all of this is happening in accordance with what God and Jesus has willed. This little quote comes from Psalm 22. You get a, a real sense of, again, how those thinking of this might have felt it. It says there in the psalm, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is a reference to humiliation. This psalm speaks to a sense of being forsaken by God. In fact, it's the same psalm which Jesus quotes from in the other gospel accounts where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everything that's being fulfilled right now, we have Jesus being put on the cross with a sign declaring him to be the king of the Jews while at the same time being treated as one who is humiliated and forsaken by God. And near the cross, those closest to him can only watch on. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women who were told in, in Luke's gospel are watching from afar, but here in John seem to have come forward now as the crucifixion has occurred. And Jesus, despite the, the pain and the agony, 
and the treatment that he's received, when he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which we have been referring to as you know, most likely John, the gospel author himself, when he saw them standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I'm going to circle back around to some what I think we can take away from that. It's a short little passage that we're looking at today. We've got Easter just one week away for us now. But that's good because I really want to do want us to slow down and to spend our time here thinking about this idea of what it means for Jesus to be the king of the Jews. Because like I said, there was a whole bunch of expectation at the time as to what the king would and wouldn't do, what sort of guy he would be. And you can imagine how disjarring it would have been for God's people back then if they had this in mind when they were thinking about what it meant to be the king of the Jews to then see Jesus there with a sign above him declaring this while he dies upon a cross. Perhaps again, they would have reflected like, what hope do we have if this is what the Romans can do to our chosen king? Or perhaps they would have thought that You know, how could this possibly be true, that this man could be our king if he hangs upon a cross and is cursed by God? But what's interesting is, is that this idea of Jesus being king is not showing up here for the first time in John's gospel. It's come up multiple times through what John has showed us. Way back in chapter 1, Nathaniel, one of the early disciples and followers of Jesus, when Jesus told him, that he saw him from afar sitting under a fig tree, miraculously knowing where he was and what he'd been doing. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And we talk back then that when Nathaniel said son of God, he wasn't thinking second person of the Trinity. That sort of idea hadn't come to the fullness of time yet. When he said son of God here, what he was referencing is God's anointed, God's chosen king. These two lines sit in parallel with one another. You are the son of God, the son of David, the king of Israel. From the first moment that he encountered him, he associated Jesus with that royal position. So too, those who followed Jesus a little bit further out, those who were following him for the sake of miracles, they too made this connection. In John 6, it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, from Deuteronomy 17, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When Nathanael saw this miracle worker Jesus, who could miraculously know things about him from a distance, he said, Could this be the king of Israel? When the Jewish people who were following Jesus and being fed by him, the feeding of the loaves and the fish and that sort of stuff, they think, my goodness, the, the, the time has finally arrived. Let's make this man king. He will set us free. Even as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, this hope for him being this royal figure comes forth. It says on John, in John 12, when he's entering in Jerusalem, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And simultaneously, going right after that, 
what the words that were in their mind, the fulfillment of prophecy that came about through this was, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, which is a reference to Israel. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So there's this title of kingship, king of Israel, that's been hanging over Jesus' ministry the entire way through. It's been in the air surrounding him. And at the same time, we've seen Jesus embrace this really recently, haven't we? In his dialogue with Pilate. Pilate asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. That's interesting, right? He's saying, indeed, I have a kingdom. Indeed, I am a king, but it doesn't look like this. Or maybe more precisely, it doesn't look like this yet. Jesus is denying this claim to earthly power, to a political Israel, to military victory. His power and his authority are going to be shown through the cross. And this is where the irony comes in that on his death pole, that this proclamation would be made above him. But it fits, right? Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The power and authority that Jesus has claimed for himself is not military and political, but rather, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down out of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This is the true power of Christ, the power of death and resurrection. He doesn't meet the people's expectations of what a king was going to do, but his power is going to be on full display when he conquers, not on the battlefield, but when he conquers the grave itself. But I think that there are two things for us to reflect on depending on where you stand this morning or where you sit this morning before Jesus. Because here's the thing, guys. This picture that we have here of Jesus as the king on the cross, winning this great spiritual victory, has to be held at the same time as the picture of Jesus as the king of kings who is to come. So in Revelation chapter 19, it says this. John had a vision where he looked upon the heavens And God showed him all sorts of different things. It's a really interesting book. Lots of different imagery to be interpreted symbolically in all sorts of different ways. But there's not really mistaking the the symbolism of what we see here with Jesus. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on it that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. On this day, Jesus allows the nations to judge him. And ironically, the nations declare in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews, while at the same time putting him to death. The nations in the form of Rome put their judgment upon Jesus, and while they declare him to be innocent, they also declare that he will die. But a time is coming when Jesus is going to return, and no one is going to mistake his power, his authority, as the heavenly host is with him, as we see this incredible picture of Jesus in all of his might and glory revealed in that vision of him riding upon a horse as his word is spoken, as the nations are judged. And it's meant to be a bit scary. Okay, we, don't, we don't normally like to, to put Jesus in that role. All right, we did this sort of weird thing sometimes where God the Father, he's allowed to be a bit scary, but Jesus is meek and mild and nice. Like that, that's kind of how we do that sometimes. But the, the Godhood, all right, the substance of God is the same between the Son and the Father. The glory of God in Christ is just as terrifying as the glory of God in the Father because their holiness, their power, their might, their authority is so far beyond us that, that, that we are nothing before them. Our worth and our value come because one as holy and grand and as mighty see us as valuable and treat us as valuable. That gives us our worth. But there's no mistaking the fact that before them, we, we are ants, lower, less. This picture of the idea of, of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, hanging on the cross should fill us with terror because of the tragic of what has actually just taken place and what has just occurred. Because this guy at any moment could step down off that cross and, as he says in the other Gospels, call a host of heaven to defend himself. And if he was an earthly ruler, that's exactly what he would have done. But no, his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is something different. But we should remember this because as we look upon the cross, as we come in towards Easter, we have to remember that Jesus, the same one who's acted to save us, is the same one who will be our judge at the end. And that, that our opportunity now is to see him in his kingship on the cross so that we might confess our sins and believe and trust in him before we get to that last terrifying, scary day of judgment. Now is the moment to recognize him for who he is. And if you're visiting here with us and you want to learn more about that, please come and talk to us because this is at the heart of the gospel, this idea that we are not holy before a holy God, that our sin leads to death, and that Jesus is in the way that we might be set free from that. But for all of us who are already following Christ, for all of us who are confessed, I want us to just see a slightly different picture of this king and what he does as he hangs upon the cross. Because again, Reflecting once more in the light of, of the, that full picture of, of who he is in Revelation and what it really means for him to be king of kings. Let's see again what he does when he hangs upon the cross. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. 
From that time on, the disciple, this disciple took her into his home. I think this, this is the thing that should, should kind of blow our minds in this space. That Jesus knows without a shadow of a doubt who he is. He knows his power. He knows his authority. He knows he's going to judge the world. He knows what the source of Pilate's authority is. He knows what the source of Pilate's power is. He knows the power that he could call down upon these Roman soldiers that beat him and mock him. He has all of this at his fingertips as he goes through real pain and real agony, suffering as a human being just like us. Beaten, bloody, tired, weary. And in the midst of that, what does he do with this power? He still seeks to love those around him, to care for them, to, to look upon his mother as he goes away, to make sure that she is going to be cared for, to give a charge to the, this young guy who's been following him to say, this is what I want you to, to focus on to make sure that, that these people who follow me are being cared for. See, we Christians, this is the amazing things, guys. The same power that rises Christ from the dead lives inside of us. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That when we believe in Jesus, His Holy Spirit comes to live and dwell within us. But what we're to do with that power and that authority that we hold in safekeeping by God's good grace is not to lord it over others. It's not to seek to rule in this world. It's not to seek political and military might with the same power that enabled Christ to stay on that Christ despite the pain, despite the agony, despite all that he could have done, what he chose to do with that power in that moment was to love those in front of him, to care for them well. So my, my charge to us this morning is this, that as we see the glory of Christ and understand the power of the one that we serve, that we would not be so foolish just to think that that means that somehow the focus that we're meant to have is ruling in some sort of political or military or organizational right in this world. Can you vote according to your Christian convictions? Absolutely. Is that a good thing to do, to seek to love people in the way that we think about politics and all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. But this is the thing. We do it in order that we might love those around us. That we might care for those in front of us. That we might know Christ as king, but not be fooled into thinking that that's the model that we're meant to follow because we can't be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But we can be the person who, in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trouble and turmoil, still love those who are before us and who we have responsibility for. It's a simple one, but I think it's a challenging one. And I'll leave that with this as we pray now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all he's done for us. Thank you, Father, for the example that he set for us. His willingness to obey you, to, to go through the mission that you'd given to him. Thank you that he shows us what power is for. It's to serve you. Thank you for the way that upon the cross and through his resurrection, he reveals to us that he truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That he's no mere man. But thank you also that as a man, as he suffers and bled and died, that he still showed us what it looks like to love and care for those before him. And we pray, Father, that for each of us as we go forth in this world, 
as we suffer difficulty and hardship, even as we know the power that we have in Christ, even as we know that we belong to a heavenly kingdom, may we not be fooled into thinking that, that means we're meant to seek power and status and authority in this world, but rather, Lord, to use what we've been given to love others and to honor you through it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.